From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, former vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board and current senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, Alice Rivlin, joins me to discuss the deficit, the debt, and the economy. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. When it comes to the deficit, the party in the majority behaves like it's portraying a reenactment of Ferris Bueller's day off. With the maturity of teenagers, they realize the keys to the Ferrari are within grasp and their parents are conveniently gone for the weekend. Deficit concerns have been conveniently relegated to the wilderness of the minority party. The current administration inherited a deficit of $600 billion, but with the tax cuts and spending increases in the recently passed budget, the projections for the deficit will exceed $1 trillion in 2019. Moreover, according to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, an independent bipartisan public policy think tank, if one assumes an extension of spending and tax cuts, which is not unreasonable, America is looking at a projected deficit that will exceed $2 trillion by 2027. How long can America remain on this precarious trajectory? Joining me to discuss the deficit and its impact is Dr. Alice Rivlin. Dr. Rivlin is a senior fellow in economic studies and the Center for Health Policy at the Brookings Institute She has also served as Director of Office and Management Budget in the first Clinton administration and Vice Chair of the Federal Reserve Board. It is an honor to have this distinguished voice on the public morality. Dr. Alice Rivlin, welcome to the public morality. Delighted to be here. Uh, In a recent piece that you wrote that appeared uh, on the Hill and was reposted on the Brookings site, you compared the climate on Capitol Hill similar to squabbling children. And now that they've passed a budget averting another government shutdown, what are your current thoughts related to the fiscal governing in 2018? Well, at least we did get a budget for the rest of this fiscal year and the next one. And that's a good thing. They stopped careening from one short-term uh, con- <laughs> resolution to another, uh, which was just ridiculous and uh, costly. But they haven't solved the problem. Uh, for the last several years, economic policy has been extremely acrimonious, full of the blame game. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. And uh, we are not even looking at the long-run issues that uh, we need to be focusing on as a nation, uh, such as the rise in debt or climate change or uh, rapidly growing inequality. Now, over the years, um, we've had a number of deficit hawks that walk the halls of Capitol Hill. I'm thinking of people like, uh, say, the late Warren Rudman, um, also the the, the late Pete Domenici, and they, they would talk about a day of reckoning if, if, if America sustained deficit spending. 
Could you just take a moment and talk about the dangers of long-term deficit spending? Yes. And I think I count probably as uh, one of those deficit hawks. Well, I, you absolutely count. That's why we're having you on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but it's complicated. Uh, it's not that we should never run deficits. Uh, if the economy is in uh, a deep recession, as we had after the uh, financial crisis of 1908, uh, I'm sorry, 2008, um, if we have a deep recession, then uh, the uh, deficits appear uh, automatically. And that's a good thing. Uh, because you don't want the government to be raising taxes or cutting spending uh, in a recession. The government can balance the fact that uh, the private sector is not doing well. But in the long run, we've got to pay for the services of government. And we don't have to pay for them every year, and we don't have to pay for them completely. We can run a little bit of debt. But if the debt is rising faster than our income is, if we have a debt as, which is rising as a percent of the gross domestic product, for example, then that's a dangerous situation, and it's the situation that we're in now. And it's dangerous because every year you have to pay more and more interest on that debt. And eventually, if your debt is going up faster than your income, your creditors lose confidence in you, and uh, they refuse to buy any more of this debt. So the United States is a very fortunate country. We have a strong economy, and people all over the world are willing to lend us money. In a sense, that spoils us. Uh, we don't have to be as fiscally responsible as other countries do, but we've taken too much advantage of this. Uh, we ought to be looking down the road and saying, Look, this cannot go on. Our spending is rising faster than our tax revenue is coming in. That's going to get worse over the next few years because of the higher expenditures for an aging population. So we better do something to fix it. Well, it seems to me, and you're certainly your your experience with this um, is, is much va much more vast than mine. But it seems to me that. It is always, it's usually the minority party in Congress that seems to be more concerned about the debt than the party uh, and the majority. The, the, the latest um, uh, spending and tax increases suggest that we may be dangerously close to uh, 101% debt-to-GDP ratio. Um, is, that, is that accurate, or, um, or, or how, how, do, how do you see that? Well, the debt-to-GDP ratio is now uh, about 77%, uh, but it's headed up. So you're, you're right about that. And you're also right that, in general, the party that is not in charge is worried about the deficit spending of the one that is in charge. We had a respite from that situation in the 1990s. I was in the Clinton administration uh, for the first two years, uh, we had a Democratic Congress. We were determined uh, to reduce the growth of debt, and we did, with some difficulty, uh, get a first uh, deficit reduction package through the Democratic Congress. Then the Republicans won in 1994. Newt Gingrich came in, and he was actually even more dedicated to balancing the budget uh, than the Democrats were. He wanted to do it in a different way. 
but both parties were dedicated to bringing the debt under control. Uh, and we had a back-and-forth negotiation, it wasn't always pretty, about how to do it. And eventually we worked out a compromise, and it was even more successful than anybody thought it was going to be because we built up a surplus for several years at the end of the uh, 90s. We hadn't been aiming for a surplus. We'd been aiming to balance the budget. Uh, but the economy was doing so well that we got a surplus. And that surplus lasted from 98 till the end of 2001, I believe. Right. Yeah. And then uh, we had a, several things happen. One was the Bush administration came in and did a major tax cut. Uh, we had expenditures uh, for uh, the uh, wars in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq. Uh, we passed a rather expensive uh, addition to Medicare, uh, and uh, all in all, the deficits came back. Was there or is there a, a point in terms of governing that America accepted uh, deficits as just a part of our economic reality for some of the reasons you mentioned earlier that maybe we can afford to run deficits like, unlike other countries? Well, we've certainly taken advantage of the fact that uh, we could borrow easily uh, over uh, quite a number of years. Uh, the current run-up in debt-to-GDP dates mainly from the recession, the deep, the Great Recession, as we call it, uh, which uh, started uh, with the crash in uh, 2008. That was inevitable. We had uh, it was necessary to have a recession. It's uh, uh, necessary to have a, uh, a deficit in the recession and to take some steps uh, like the stimulus package and uh, cutting some taxes that would uh, help us get through the, uh, the recession. That worked. Uh, now we're uh, out of the recession. The unemployment rate is down. Uh, but we haven't looked far enough ahead at the retirement of the baby boom generation, the cost that generates. And the fact that our tax system is simply not going to give us enough revenue to pay all those benefits, we have to borrow the difference. It's a larger and larger difference, and that's the source of the prospective increases in debt. And given that borrowing, at the current interest rates, the, why uh, would China and others continue to buy our bonds? China and other countries uh, benefits from having a good economy in the United States. They don't want to throw us into a tailspin. So they have uh, a, a lot to lose if they stop buying our bonds. And uh, uh, we have uh, rapidly increasing interest rates and uh, uh, plunge into recession ourselves. Uh, so uh, we need to work this thing out uh, before our creditors get uh, so scared about our uh, credibility that they do stop buying our bonds. Now, now you've, you've been honored to serve on several blue ribbon commissions to address the deficit. Uh, now, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting this as someone from the outside, but we see the commissions are formed. The committees do honest work, but there seems to be a gap between the recommendations offered by the committee and the actual implementation uh, for the reason that the, that the, that the uh, committee was uh, formed. Uh, it seems like the committee was formed to appease the public. Is that reality? Uh, um, you were on those committees. How, how, did, how did that feel to you? 
No, I don't think uh, those commissions are, are appointed to a piece of public. Uh, they're appointed to try to uh, solve the problem. Uh, I served on the Simpson-Bowles Commission, uh, appointed by uh, President Obama, uh, at, but it uh, was composed of uh, members of Congress from both parties and both the Senate and uh, the House, as well as some public members, of which I was lucky enough to be one. Uh, and we made some good recommendations. Republicans and Democrats worked together uh, and uh, came up with a good set of recommendations. But those recommendations always involve some pain. Uh, there are only two things you can do about a deficit. You can cut spending uh, or you can raise taxes. And we've got to do both. And the commission recognized that we had to do both that gradually over time we had to reduce the rising cost of health care benefits for older people, and we had to raise some more revenue. Uh, that means tax increases, but it can mean tax increases in the context of a tax reform that makes the system fairer and broader base and actually lowers the rates. So in that commission and others I've served on, uh, we had those proposals. But they didn't pass uh, because there wasn't the political will in either political party to take responsibility for things they knew would be unpopular. Uh, the Democrats don't want to vote for any uh, reductions in uh, long-run spending, especially not uh, entitlement spending, and Republicans don't want to vote for a tax increase even if it is a tax reform that lowers rates. Uh, so uh, you're sort of stuck there. And until we get enough leadership in the two parties to say, look, we got to join hands and do this thing together, uh, we're not going to solve the problem. You know, you know, Dr. Riven, as you were giving that answer, I, I was recalling um, a report that I read from uh, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget um, that projected that by, if, if we continue the same level of spending or increases the same level of sp in, in spending along with extending out the recent tax cuts through 2027, we're looking at $2 trillion. Yeah, it's big, but it's, we're a big economy. I don't think the problem is that uh, uh, the things you have to do are so uh, to solve the problem of rising debt are so massive. But you have to start doing them soon, do them gradually over time, and make sure that the country understands what you're doing and that the leadership of both parties is on board so that neither can demonize the other and say, uh, those terrible people uh, on the other, in the other party uh, are making you do hard things. We have to do hard things, and we need both parties recognizing that. The, the deficit isn't the only problem we're denying. Climate change uh, is another, and it has the same characteristics. Uh, if we're going to solve this problem or mitigate it over the next few years, uh, there's going to be some pain involved. It's going to be hard. Uh, and we need the party leadership in both parties that will say, we have to get on top of this uh, and uh, we're uh, going to agree to do the necessary things. Well, what I hear you saying is that, uh, let's just say, 
if if I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican just for this for this conversation. I'm OK with the pain if it's your people. Right? Is that but I'm not but I'm going to tell my people can be pain free. Is that is that what's going on? Yeah, that's uh, that's basically it. And uh, it's very un-American, in my uh, opinion. Uh, it's denying that there's a problem, uh, and it is refusing to take responsibility. Uh, you know, uh, when you want your uh, economy to grow faster or your business to grow faster, uh, you have to invest now in order to have a more productive economy in the future. That means you can't spend as much in the near term, for example. Uh, we know that uh, lots of desirable things take uh, difficult decisions and uh, cause some pain. But our political system now has gotten so partisan that neither party uh, wants to uh, accept responsibility. They just want to blame the other one. And that's a recipe for disaster. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Alice Rivlin, former vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board and currently a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute located in Washington, D.C. Dr. Rivlin, um, this sort of harkens back to what we were talking earlier. Um, I won't go so far as to say that authentic deficit hawks are extinct on Capitol Hill, but they feel to be an endangered species. And I wonder how how you saw that. Well, I translate that to say we're not we're only doing short term uh short term policy focusing on getting past the next uh, few weeks or a few months uh as we did in the recent uh budget agreement, which I thought was a good one uh but it doesn't face up to the long run problems and the deficit growth the debt growth in debt is one of them uh we are simply in denial about these uh, uh, bigger problems that face us down the road. And the denial is very costly because uh, we are not taking the small steps that we could take in the near term and risking that we'll have to take bigger ones later. In the long term, uh, and, we can, and you can also include, include your analysis with, with climate change, which you've mentioned several times in, in this conversation, but in the long term, are we putting our national security at risk with this behavior? Oh, I think we're putting uh, a lot at risk. We're putting the prosperity of our economy at risk, and we're ta- putting our reputation as a democracy that can solve problems at risk. The world looks at the disarray in Washington right now, the bickering, the name-calling, the ugliness, uh, the partisan tribalism, if you will, and says these people can't get their act together. They can't uh, even uh, solve uh, problems. Uh, the current one is uh, uh, is immigration. They just fight about it and fight about it. That's a very bad advertisement for democracy. Uh, we send young people around the world to fight and die in the name of democracy. And our democracy at home isn't working right now at all. You, you know, I mean, I mean, these are days you, you remember from going back, say, from, from, from the Gingrich days when he, when he when Speaker of the House to the present moment. Um, we sort of weaponized shutting down the government. 
Yes. Yeah. Sort of to your point. Uh, we have two uh, tactics for blaming the other side. Uh, one is, if you don't do what we want, we'll shut down the government. Uh, Gingrich did that in uh, the mid-90s, uh, 90, 95, 96. Uh, and uh, they, it happened again in 2013, uh, and we just had a brief shutdown before this two-year agreement. Uh, there's a, a shutdown of the government is ridiculous. It's costly. It doesn't benefit anybody. Uh, it's just a weapon to say, if you don't do things our way, uh, we're going to do this costly thing. The other one is the debt ceiling. Uh, we have occasionally run up against uh, the uh, ceiling on what we can borrow uh, as a nation for the obligations we've already undertaken. And uh, then uh, there's a tendency to say, well, uh, we'll use this as a weapon. We'll say we're going to default on our debt if we don't get our way uh, on uh, uh, the budget or whatever it is that's being uh, discussed. Uh, that's even more destructive than shutting down the government. It calls into question the credibility of our of our country and whether we pay our debts, uh, and that could be very, very dangerous. In, in, in this current climate, uh, Dr. Rubin, are, um, is the dollar secure as the world's uh, reserve currency? Oh, well, I think uh, there's nothing that's undermining the dollar uh, right now, uh, but um, eventually other country, uh, other currencies uh, uh, will uh, will challenge us. We could have a world currency uh, at some point, but there's nothing really uh, terrible about having uh, people keep their uh, countries keep their reserves uh, in euros or in some other uh, acceptable currency in addition to the dollar. But you're not worried about the Bitcoin right now, I take it. Oh, no, I'm not worried about the Bitcoin. I'm worried about people who invest in Bitcoin and get and get into trouble uh, because of it. Now, it's, it's, it's expected the Fed will uh, raise interest rates this year. Um, I'm wondering, from your perspective, have we put ourselves in a position where we must raise rates to potentially cool off an overheated economy, but also to continue to attract foreign investment. And is that a good formula? Well, you're right that the Fed will probably raise interest rates uh, a little bit uh, over uh, the next year. I'm not very worried about that. Uh, They have been extremely low. And uh, the Federal Reserve, on which I served in the the 1990s, uh, likes to have uh, interest rates... Uh, high enough so that if something terrible happens like a recession, they can cut them and stimulate the economy. Uh, for the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, we've been at very, very low interest rates. And uh, the Fed feels there's enough strength in the economy right now uh, to allow them to gradually move the interest rates up. Now, if they think the economy is overheating, they'll move them up a little bit faster. Um, I don't think there's a terrible danger of inflation in any near term. Uh, If there is, we know what to do about it. But um, it would be good to get uh, interest rates back into more normal range to give the Fed a little bit more ammunition in case they need to stimulate the economy again.
And, and, and do you worry that America's trajectory vis-a-vis the deficit and the debt, if we continue on this path, do you worry that we might become our own existential threat? Uh, I do. Uh, it's part, as I've made clear, of my general worry that we aren't thinking ahead and that we are engaged in such partisan warfare uh, that the people that we elect to govern us are not sitting down together and saying, how do we solve these problems? Whether it's the rising debt or climate change or the rapidly escalating uh, inequality, uh, there are lots of problems that we need to be solving. We need to fix our infrastructure. Nobody's against that. Uh, We are just having partisan warfare uh, that uh, doesn't allow us to actually sit down and say, okay, let's do it. And I've I've heard conflicting reports um Given uh, the the tax cuts that were just enacted uh, and the spending and the trajectory on, on on the deficit, is is infrastructure spending right now um, doable? Uh, yes, I think it is. Uh, I think it's imperative. Uh, we have let our infrastructure decline. If we want to be a higher growth economy. And we do need to be uh, if uh, we're going to uh, be prosperous in the long run. uh, Then uh, we have to have a sensible plan for modernizing our infrastructure, roads, bridges, rail, uh, Internet, all of it uh, over over time. We do have to figure out how to pay for it, uh, but we need to do it. (laughs) I remember... um when it was alleged that former Vice President Dick Cheney uh, opined that um, former President Ronald Reagan proved that deficits don't matter. Now, while it could be argued that that was an economic statement or one of of politics, but on either front, how long can we continue before deficits really will matter? Well, I think they matter already in the sense that uh, we know that we're going to have a higher deficit in the future and more debt. And we know what we need to do uh, uh, gradually over time to uh, reduce the prospect of uh, that rapidly growing uh, debt. Uh, But we are not likely to have some kind of crisis in the near term. And the U.S. government works better when it's facing a crisis. When it's attacked, as at Pearl Harbor, we pull ourselves together and do miraculous things. When we're running out of money in the Social Security system, as they did in 1983, they say, okay, let's be sensible. What do we need to do to fix this? Uh, The Democrats want to do this, and the Republicans want to do that, and let's do some of each. Uh, That's what the kind of thing that we need to do about the long-run debt. And um, before before we let you go... um, you know, because you've talked about the debt, we've talked about the deficit. Could you just briefly explain the difference between the two? Because oftentimes in people's minds, I think they get interchanged. Could you explain the difference between the two, please? Yes. Um, the debt is what you are currently borrowing. Uh, in any given year, whether you're a country or an individual, uh, if you can't... Uh, Uh, pay out of your income for what you're currently buying, uh, the normal thing to do is borrow, put it on your credit card. Uh, And that's what uh, governments do as well. Uh, The debt is your accumulated deficits. If you keep adding 
to your credit card debt uh, every year um, and run a deficit every year, then you have higher credit card debt. That was Dr. Alice Rivlin. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Welcome back. Before my closing remarks, this week we commemorated President's Day. In honor of that holiday, here is the great actor Charles Lawton reciting the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. We are now engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are now on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far beyond our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced it is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish. From the earth. And now for my closing remarks. As it says in the Gettysburg Address, I'd say we do indeed need a rebirth. We're not at Gettysburg or Manassas, but we are encroaching on division, leading to a civil war of the minds. 
We cannot continue to pretend the truth rests exclusively on our side of the political ledger, nor can a wellspring of possibility be found in an orthodoxy pregnant with contempt for the other side. The titillation and validation we experience when someone espouses how we're feeling can blind us to the fact that how we feel, albeit justified, oftentimes does not tell the entire story. Maybe there are others whose story is different, those who do not conform to the stereotypes that we conveniently hold for them also have a piece of the elusive truth that we seek. Ironically, there very well may be those who we've placed in a box of our assumptions that feel exactly as we do. We cannot be so arrogant as to assume our portion of the truth represents what is true in totality. Though it is comforting to do so, it's simply not true. There are those whose race, gender, orientation, religion, or lack thereof, or political orthodoxy also possesses a small sliver of truth that differs from the one we hold, but is equally valid. This is what makes America so dynamic and yet so challenging. America is a collection of truths, reality based on one's social location and lens. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down at the table of brotherhood. Well-known quotes from three men, all different in terms of social standing, two white, one black, each from different centuries. The first gave meaning to the idea of America. The other articulated the values that made it worth holding together, while the other provided an enhanced vision for what it could mean in the 20th century and beyond. We can ill afford to be so self-assured that our perspective is the correct one. What we should be doing is trying to gain some appreciation for the lens that is different. That is the only way to move toward the elusive more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which is found on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams.
Thank you. 